Um, last Sunday we were beginning a series about different kinds of looking from that story in Luke 24, and um, again, my, my thanks uh, to those who, who stepped up last week and were able to make the arrangements to do the filming and fill in for the bits that are the service when I, when I wasn't here. Grateful to you. We're looking at the theme then last week of looking back, and of course there are wrong kinds of looking back, Jesus had said so, and in Philippians 3, Paul mentions another one about, you know, if he says, forgetting what's behind, I strain, that is, I'm not going to be held back by my failures, I'm not going to be held back by not having achieved or, or whatever, I'm going to reach on. But there are proper ways in looking back, and we saw Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus saying, actually they hadn't looked back far enough. We need to look back to what is the basis, what is the foundation of faith. And that's something the church has to regularly do. But also from Psalm 1 to 6, we saw looking back sometimes acts as an encouragement or as a motivation. God has done this. And we're basically saying, God, do more, do it again, for that is our God. There are no guarantees, no future promises about the nation of Israel in the New Testament, and there are none about any particular church or denomination or church grouping. But we look back on the foundations of Christ has died and risen for us, and we look back also through history to a time when God has time and again been at work through His people. So there's an encouragement in looking back. But I want to go to another kind of looking today, and it really comes from verse 32 of that first passage that Jan read in Luke chapter 24. The two travelers had walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. It was evening was coming, and they said to Jesus, who looked as if he was going further, come and, and stay with us. And when they shared a meal together, it was then that they recognized who Jesus was, but he disappeared from their sight. And they say this in verse 32, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning within us when he talked to us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? That is, when they looked inside, there was something going on. They, now, have you ever had that kind of thing? Something just is so wonderful that you're just feeling gripped by it, taken up by it. It's kind of like the heart's burning. Something's just very, very, very exciting, and it's great. Have you ever felt like that with any of the truths of the gospel? Is there any point in your life when you've said, wow, this is the good news, and be gathered up and, and felt that? Now, I'm not saying that the experience itself is something to be sought, and, and we're all different, are we not? We have different ideas about what is appropriate and responses and experiences. One person's exuberance is another person's hideous embarrassment. Um, one person's um, respectability and being done in order is another person's cold formalism. We're, we're different. And we can't say a church is more spiritual just if it's showing all kinds of physical um, responses. A church where you have to go and say, hands down, those of you who want coffee, is not necessarily a more spiritual church than others. Nor am I saying that we should aim for the experience itself. The kind of thinking that says, I'm only a genuine Christian when I've been swinging from chandeliers at at least a dozen meetings, is, is a terrible mistake. 
The experience itself is not the key issue, being confronted and changed and ministered to by the Word of God. Even better, putting it, meeting Jesus Himself through His Word. That's the key issue. But if we have come to Christ, if we are truly His, there will be times, there will be moments when that has just been so overwhelmingly great in our hearts and in our minds. And our our hearts will have been burning within us. Here is the gospel, so real and so wonderful, and it's for us. Um, For the past uh, couple of Sundays and the next couple of Sundays to to come, um, not not in its entirety when I've been choosing the praise list, but in, in some of them I've thought, I want to put in a couple of my favorites here. You know, I want to sing these hymns at least once more at Claremont before, before I finish and before I retire. But as I say, it's not been all, all the way, and it's not been I must cram in all my favorites. And one I didn't have in and is, is not in is Charles Wesley's um, hymn, And Can It Be, which has long been one of my favorites. But, it, but here it's got that expression, can it be, Really? that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood, that that sacrifice is for me, really? Or as he says at the end of that same verse, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You see, how can this be? There's a sense in which this is so overwhelmingly great. There is just a sense in which this is almost literally too good to be true. God loves me like that enough to go to the cross for me. God cares about me like that. God has shed his love out for me and, and given me a, a purpose and a dignity and a worth and called me a child of God. Me. Now, as I've said, we've got different temperaments, different preferences, different styles for all kinds of things. But that experience of being overwhelmed by the grace of God, of our hearts burning within us, is not something that's to be unusual or rarefied for some, but something that's basic bread and butter of the Christian life. That and can it be amazing love that Wesley worked through in that hymn till at verse 5 he could say, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Not bold I approach because I'm good or because I'm better or because I've been a minister or anything like that, through Christ my own. We should all, at some stage, at some point, if we're in Christ, have been affected in that kind of way. Really? That? For me, he loves me that much. It's not always going to be with us. It's not a constant experience in the Christian life. There are times when hardships and oppositions come, and we might not feel like that. Although it's significant in Scripture on a number of occasions that when people are suffering and in persecution, God in His graciousness has stepped in, and He has done something about it. Stephen, the first martyr, Acts chapter 7, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Okay, God in his graciousness gave him that experience. But I notice how that bit ends. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yes, that Saul of Tarsus who became Paul, an outstanding missionary and Christian for, uh, and follower of Jesus, an author of many of the New Testament books, including Philippians, where we had our second reading. And Paul wrote that letter, Philippians, when he was in jail. In jail, not because he had broken the law by stealing or killing or anything like that, but because he was speaking up for Jesus. Paul didn't become a Christian so that he could go on in life, so that it would increase his status or his wealth or any such thing. Rather, he was gripped by gospel truth, and it transformed him. And the change was thorough. Verse 8 of the passage in Philippians that John read, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. All that career I was on, that kind of learning status as a respected Pharisee, my qualifications from Jerusalem University, my diploma from the society of this, that, and next thing, the, the pride that my mum and dad felt when I was getting on and getting all of that. None of that matters, he says. None of that counts, because the most important thing is knowing Jesus. And that is just too good to be true. It was a complete change. So he went from being somebody who approved of Satan, uh, Satan, Stephen being stoned, to somebody who was all out in his discipleship for Christ. And this transformation came from within. He says in verse 10 that he wants to know more of Christ. In verse 12 that he press on. Verse 13, straining towards what is ahead. Verse 14, it's press on again. And all of these are what we call continuous present tense. That is, I want to know and I keep on wanting to know. I'm pressing on and I keep on wanting to press on. I'm straining towards what is ahead and I'm keeping on doing that. I'm pressing on and want more and more. Where does, where does that come from? You see, I think if we could conjure up the Apostle Paul and said. Come on, how did, where did you get that kind of stuff from? Where did you get that attitude? You know, he wouldn't say, well, actually, I'm, I've got better willpower than you guys, or, you know, I'm just a bit more disciplined than you, or whatever. He would simply say, it's from Christ. Same as Wesley. Bold, I approach the eternal throne through Christ, who is my own. It's the realization of what God has done. Dying for his sins, rising to bring the new life of the kingdom of God. That was what made Paul righteous, verse 9, even though elsewhere he would tell us that he was the worst of sinners. It's the joy and delight he has in knowing Jesus and meeting Jesus, being thrilled by all that God is towards us and for us. That's what grips and excites not just Paul, but all who come to see what Jesus was doing for them. The holy God becomes the one on whom fell the judgment of sin that we might go free. And so this, our hearts burning within us, 
It's something that should be that instinctive response to a gospel. We would do that in other ways, wouldn't we? If, if somebody gave us something that was just suddenly out of the blue and that we thought was incredibly generous, you know, someone says, here's 5,000 pounds. You don't say, all right, okay, put it over there. I'll get it when I'm ready. <laughs> somebody who's been trapped in something for, for years and years has, has suddenly got some kind of release from that. They don't just say, thanks very much, that's great. When we've got something that's great, when we've got something that's just indescribably good towards us and for us, it's, it's a reflex, it's, it's an instinctive response, isn't it? Wow, thank you very much. That's great. And I think if we've never felt that about the gospel, then it's probably because we've never got it. We've never really come to see who Christ really and truly is to us and for us. Using what we think was a, an ancient hymn of the time, Paul in the previous chapter in, in Philippians has reflected on that greatness of Jesus. Jesus who being the very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him, the gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, in eternity with God, having the glory of heaven, lays it aside, takes on, comes in the human likeness, is obedient, even obedient to death on the cross. Why? Because he wants to bring the saving love of God to us. That's fine, Jesus. Just put it over there. I'll get it in five minutes. That's not the response, is it? It's a sense of privilege of knowing that we matter. It's a security that comes from being loved unconditionally. We should know such a God in our daily lives. And so the fullness of our contentment in Christ is a good measure. Whether we, might, whether we can tell if whether we know him or not. Three things in conclusion. One, <clears throat> all of us, and I mean all of us, don't have such a knowledge and experience of God by ourselves. Sometimes I hear people say things like, I wish I had their faith. I'm not quite sure what we mean. The important thing is not their faith. The important thing is the God that their faith is in. And that God has made himself open and available to us. You know, it's not like saying, I wish I had your ability to sing, or I wish I had your ability to run fast, or I wish I had your ab ability to be good at drawing. These kind of things are beyond the reach of some of us. Some of, maybe all of them are beyond the reach of some of us. 
but faith's not like that. It's not some kind of ability like that. It's, it's simply grasping who God is in Christ. And we each need to recognize that we cannot serve God, have eternal life on the basis of our own effort and goodness. That's exactly the stuff that Paul said in verse 9 of Philippians 3 that he'd left behind. We're all in the same boat. Secondly, we must seek the Savior. For when he was on earth, Jesus invited people into his company to spend time with him, to, to learn from him, to take on board what he was saying. Some did and others didn't. The salvation was not something that somehow passed automatically through the air and landed mysteriously. It was on that basis of whether they listened to Jesus and responded to him. Now, 2,000 years later, we cannot physically go to Jesus in a particular time and place, but his promise is that through the Holy Spirit, by taking his word, being open to his word, and by acting on his word, we get to know him. Just as certainly as the crowds did as they gathered around him. So we must seek the Savior. We're all in the same boat. We must seek the Savior. And the third and last thing I want to say is that while the heart's burning within experience is not to be sought for its own sake, we do need regular reminding of the need to keep a warm and living relationship with the living God. It's easy over time for desire to serve, to become duty. It's easy over time for a task that we once faced eagerly to become something that doesn't matter to us. It's easy over time for something that engaged us to become something that we're rather slipshod and careless about. It happens, doesn't it? It doesn't just happen with issues about faith. It happens and all kinds of things. Somebody starts a new job and takes fantastic pride in their appearance. By the time they've been doing it for five years, they're not putting the same kind of work into it before they go out in the morning. It happens. Somebody gets a, a new car or something, you look after it. I remember a <clears throat> neighbor saying to Karen and I the first time we First time we pushed Ruth um, in the pram down to church, we, were, we went across the railway line. There was a railway line, a level crossing. We, were we went across that as if you were on eggs, she said. You know, first time didn't upset the baby over this. See, after we'd done it half a dozen times, <laughs> you know. There's all kinds of things where we, we approach things very, very gingerly, very, very carefully. And then after time, we become a bit more blasé. Yeah. Now, the really sad thing is that that can happen in relationship with God. Something that was once gripping and exciting becomes… I remember um, when I first became a, a Christian uh, years ago, I remember being getting a given my first set of daily Bible reading notes, and, and they were dated, you know, they were started on the, I can't remember exactly, the 1st of June or something like that. <clears throat> and this was the middle of May. And I just was so desperate for the 1st of June so that I could start using these notes. I really was, I was desperate. I can't stand here and say that I've kept that up all the time had that same desperate feeling. 
Sometimes I've gone to the Word of God just feeling a bit more like a, oh, a better. It happens, doesn't it? It happens to all of us. And the way that we should work against that happening is not simply just galvanizing ourselves and saying, I'm going to do better, I'm going to try harder. Let's look at Christ. The one who went through and suffered all of that for us and therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Look to Jesus. When the people of Israel um, under Moses' leadership were rescued out of Egypt, when they went wandering in the wilderness, not even McDonald's had opened shops there by that time. And so it was manna in the wilderness that they got. And they were told that every day you've got to go out and collect manna. And don't think you can collect enough for two days and then have a long lie. Because the next day the manna won't be any good. And that's what they were told and that's what happened. They learned very quickly not to rely on yesterday's manna. Don't rely on yesterday's manner. I used to believe that mattered. I did this once. I felt like this. Don't rely on yesterday's grace. Because the good news of the gospel is as a living God whose grace is new every day. His love is new every day. And who wants us to enjoy that love and that grace. He wants us to have eternal life, not just as something tacked on whenever, but something that we enjoy here and now. And that's great and it's exciting. Look in. Are your hearts burning within you? Was there a time when they did burn more and, and, and look to Christ? He's worth it. Let us pray.